But let's go ahead and pray together now. And then I want to go ahead and share today's sermon scripture with you, which is in Isaiah chapter 9. But let's pray first. Father, thank you for being our Father, for making a way for sinners like us to be adopted as your children. I pray that each person watching this live stream right now would, through Jesus, experience all the full benefits of being your child. The peace that comes from being able to just cast their anxieties onto you because you care for them. The wisdom that comes from being able to consult with you in your word and pray through the issues of their lives with you like a child talking to their dad. Lord, let us live in light of the fact that we are your children and you are our Father. Thank you for the ways you have provided for us and cared for us this week. And thank you for the answered prayers. Thank you for sustaining us during this time when we are apart. You are good and we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 8. This is our sermon scripture for, for today. Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 8. If you recall last week, we left off on a triumphant note of hope that Jesus Christ is king. He's a governmental leader, that he is going to increase his government. And as his government increases, peace will increase. And so we as Christians are part of this kingdom movement of Jesus's. And so we have every reason for hope. We have every reason for optimism. And we have clear direction as citizens of the kingdom. It was a great passage, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Here at verse 8, the tone abruptly shifts from this note of hope in King Jesus to a note of discipline. God the Father is about to discipline his children as we read verse 8. Let's, let's begin by reading it together. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. So we'll stop right there. All these geographical references are in reference to Israel, the northern kingdom. Remember, they were split to Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Most of Isaiah is addressed to Judah in the southern kingdom, but here he's talking to the northern kingdom. So I'm not going to go into great detail about each of these geographic references here, but they're all different ways of talking about the whole northern kingdom. Israel, God's ancient people, God is about to discipline them for various reasons. This actually introduces a section that is uh, a poem with four different parts to it, and we're just going to look at the first part of the poem today. Now, if you'll recall last summer when we introduced the book of Isaiah, we talked about how it is applicable for us as modern-day Christians because we learn from it a great deal about our Father. It's as if we are younger siblings listening in on a father-son chat between God and our older sibling. So I told you last year, last summer, I am a younger sibling. My brother is five years older than me, and I learned a lot about my mom and dad by watching them discipline my older brother. I learned a lot about what they value and what they are not going to put up with. And so I learned my lessons by just watching his pain as he was disciplined. And we have that same benefit now as modern Christians. We can listen in to God the Father 
disciplining our ancient older brother Israel and learn a great deal about him, what he values and what he's not going to put up with. The first thing we learn here is just the simple fact that God the Father disciplines his children. He's a good dad, and good dads discipline their children. Hebrews chapter 12 says this explicitly in verse 7. Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The logic is so simple in the Bible about this fatherly discipline. Um, Fathers discipline their children. God is our father, so he disciplines us. If you are not disciplined by God, it means you're not his child because he doesn't only discipline some of his children, he disciplines all of his children. This, this has huge implications. This means if you are able to live in ongoing unrepentant sin and you're comfortable with that for a stretch of time, it is a huge red flag that you may not be a Christian at all that you may not be a legitimate child of God. You may be a churchy person. You may be someone who knows the Bible inside and out. But if if you're able to sin continually as an ongoing lifestyle without God correcting you and disciplining you, that's a big red flag that you may not be a child of God at all. It could be that you are in a season in which you're just plowing through all of his discipline and you're plowing through the accumulating consequences of your sin and you're plowing through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and it just hasn't brought you to a halt yet, but it will. That's possible. It may be that you're a Christian, and he just hasn't brought the discipline fully to bear yet. But it may be that you're not a Christian at all because he disciplines his children. Now, I'm not saying that you won't struggle with sin as a Christian. You definitely will. I definitely do. All Christians do. But there's a difference between struggling with sin and struggling against sin and living a lifestyle of sin without interruption by God. There's a difference between struggling against worldliness that's always trying to get a grip on us and cling to us and living a lifestyle of worldliness where we just embrace all the values and priorities of the world. There's a difference between a Christian who is growing in his ability to be honest and someone who claims to be a Christian but is deceitful as long as the day is, that is comfortable deceiving people. There's a difference between a Christian who is tempted to commit adultery or even who does commit adultery but then is crushed with uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit and repents and seeks forgiveness and someone who just commits adultery and justifies it and makes excuses for it or blames their spouse for it. So you get the idea of what I'm talking about. Our Father 
disciplines us. He disciplines his children. Whatever your sin pattern may be, if you're a Christian, you can expect God to discipline you. He's not going to just allow you to continue in it forever. He loves you too much. He values you too much, just like a good father loves his children too much to not discipline them. So what specific sin is the father talking about here during this father-son chat with our ancient older brother, Israel? Let's read on and find out. So he says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, dot, dot, dot. We'll see. We'll hear what they say in just a minute. But here we get what it is that God is addressing, what the Father is addressing. Pride and arrogance of heart. What is pride and what is arrogance? These are words that we're familiar with and use, but we may not all have the same definition. The English definitions I looked up, one way to define pride is a high regard for yourself. And one way to define arrogance is an overbearingly proud way of relating to other people. So you may have people coming to mind right now that definitely embody pride and arrogance, that have a high view of themselves and have an overbearingly proud way of relating to other people. But before we go too far with these definitions for our English words, pride and arrogance, let's let the passage define and explain what God is talking about. What is it that these people have been doing that God the Father is trying to correct? So he says, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Now, it's not clear what the event is he's describing here. Is this something that happened in the past and they reacted this way? Is this predictive of something that's going to happen in the future and he knows they're going to react this way? It's not really important that we understand the specifics of the event. What we do understand is the character that is revealed in someone who would speak this way. This gives a clear picture of the pride and arrogance of heart that God the Father is not going to put up with. In essence, rather than humbly turning to God the Father and receiving his correction and inquiring of him during times of disaster, they arrogantly ignore him and continue on their course. So this is the, um, the alternative of this is what is described in verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. This, I think, is, is the alternative, what he wishes they would do. Turn to him and inquire of him. Instead, they ignore him and continue on their, their course. We're going to talk more about verse 13 next week. For now, let's think about this pride and arrogance of heart. It's the pride of a child in Walmart whose mom says, no, I'm not going to buy this toy for you. The child sees a toy, it's a $40 toy, it's an expensive toy, and is begging and begging and begging his mom to buy it for him. And the mom says, no, I love you too much to just get you everything you want. That doesn't teach you anything good. I want to teach you stewardship. Uh, we stick to a budget in this family because we want to be a good steward of our money so that we can be generous with people. And I want to teach you gratitude because you have a lot of toys at home that you don't play with. And I just don't think you need to add another toy to that right now just because you want to. 
Now picture that child then saying in their heart, whatever, mom, I'm just going to ask grandma and she'll buy it for me. That's the pride that God is talking about here. Refusal to listen to the wise teaching and the correction and an insistence upon going, continuing the course. It's the pride of a teenager whose parents tell them, you're not allowed to have social media on your phone yet. We don't feel like it's safe for you. We don't feel like it's healthy for you. We love you too much. We don't want your uh, social pressures from school following you home in the evenings and over the weekends. And there's uh, dangers associated with social media. We don't feel like you're ready to navigate yet. So no social media on your phone. And then that teenager saying within their heart, whatever, mom and dad, I'll just secretly get social media on my phone and keep it hidden from you. You can see how disrespectful that is for children or teenagers to respond to their parents' instruction and correction in that way. You can also see how self-defeating it is because refusal to listen to parental correction cuts you off from the benefits of that correction. So where the child might have learned stewardship and gratitude and the teenager might have learned safety and peace, instead they learn nothing. And this is what Israel had experienced. Because they had this attitude of pride and arrogance of heart, they were blind to what God wanted to show them, and they were deaf to what God wanted to say to them. And instead of being corrected and correctable, they stubbornly and stupidly kept their course. Even though things were being destroyed around them, they said, you know, Bricks have fallen. They didn't even acknowledge that God's the one that brought the bricks down in the first place. They said, well, our bricks have fallen. We're going to replace them with beautiful, uh, how does he say it, dressed stones. They say our sycamores have been cut down, but instead of acknowledging that God cut those down in discipline, they say they've been cut down. We're going to plant in their place cedars, which are much more beautiful and valuable than those sycamores. So they're, they're full of pride and arrogance of heart that makes them deaf to God's correction and makes them stubbornly and stupidly continue their course of rebellion against him. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, this is somewhat interesting, but it's irrelevant to me because I'm not proud or arrogant of heart. Well, nobody thinks of themselves as being proud or arrogant of heart. I think it's a rare person who actually would say, yes, I'm proud and arrogant of heart, and that's just who I am. Uh, so we need to do some self-examination here because if proud, arrogant people don't know that they're proud and arrogant, how do we know that we're not proud or arrogant? We need to think a little bit. So I have some questions. Why is it that so few Christians diligently pursue the greatest two commandments? Jesus summed up all the commandments into two. The first one is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, that is not something that you can check off of your to-do list. That is something we're never going to have fully accomplished. That's something we're always going to be growing in. But why is it, just anecdotally, and I think you maybe could say that you've experienced this too, why is it that so few Christians take that command really seriously? At least trying to figure it out. How do I grow to love God more? How do I stop loving other things more than I love God? How do I learn how to love God with my heart? What does it mean to love God with my soul? How do I love him with my mind? What does it mean to love him with my strength? 
Why do so many Christians seem ambivalent to this greatest of all commandments? Think of the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Why do so many Christians sound and act and react exactly like non-Christians toward their neighbors? Why do so many Christian social media posts read exactly the same as non-Christians? Why is there, in general, uh, a bit of apathy toward God's correction and teaching among those who call themselves Christians? Putting it another way, think about the pandemic. The pandemic has come along, and it's as if God hit the update and restart button on a computer. Everything is shut down, and we've had all this time to think and gain perspective. And I've heard many people say, I think God's trying to teach us something through this. And many people say, you know, this break from the busyness and the hectic nature of my schedule and all the the uh, trying to keep up with the kids' ball schedule and everything, with all that being taken away, it's like now I can see clearly how I have misprioritized my life and I've not been putting God first. And my family relationships are shallow and basically we're just hustling from event to event and all these things. I think God's trying to teach me something. And yet, now that we're starting to open back up, many are just going right back to the exact same lifestyle they had before the pandemic. And they're not learning any of the lessons that God is trying to teach them. Or think about churches and how they've responded to the pandemic. Many churches responded by trying to replicate digitally everything that they were doing in person before the pandemic. But could it not be that while these bricks have fallen and these sycamores have been cut down, God is trying to teach us something. This is a golden opportunity to inquire of the Lord and turn to Him and Ask him, is there some way that we could come back together that is healthier than we were before and is more honoring to you than how we were doing things before? Think about the civil unrest going on in our country. How many Christians, instead of inquiring of the Lord and turning to him in prayer and seeking wisdom in the scripture about issues related to policing and race and government and things like this, are just doubling down on the opinions that they had before this. Christians are to be a humble, teachable, correctable people. Now, we all have pride and arrogance of heart. I think hopefully these questions have helped kind of show that this is an issue for all of us to to varying degrees. What we see here is that God does not allow his children to continue on in pride and arrogance of heart. Let's see what he's going to do as we read verses 11 and 12. But the Lord raises the adversaries of reason against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So God acted to correct the pride and arrogance of heart of his people, and he still does. So what is the answer for us since we know that we all have some level of pride and arrogance of heart? The answer, unsurprisingly, is Jesus Christ. His ever-increasing government is the answer. The answer is not, we've got to muster up humility out of our own willpower. The answer is to recognize the pride and arrogance of heart within us and to go to God humbly asking for forgiveness based on what Jesus did on the cross 
and to allow him to start to recreate us in his own image, which is perfectly humble and teachable. I want to read another one of my favorite passages, Philippians 2, starting at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus leads the way in humility and away from pride and arrogance of heart. And as his people, we are are sheltered beneath him. We don't have to worry that God is going to send foreign enemies to devour us like he did Israel because we are in Jesus. Jesus was victorious over pride and arrogance of heart. We, as his citizens of his kingdom, are safe and secure, not based on our own performance here, but based on Jesus's performance on our behalf. And we get to become more like Jesus every day. Through the power of his grace and mercy, he brings it about in us. We can lean into that sanctification process through spiritual disciplines like what you're doing right now, listening to a sermon. Uh, Another big part of this is the Lord's Supper, which, as I mentioned earlier, we were able to partake in this morning outside together. We did it using these little uh, cups that have attached to the top of them a little wafer. You peel off and access the wafer, then you peel another layer and you access the cup. Not ideal. I am increasingly convinced that the best way to uh, participate in the Lord's Supper together is as part of a full, real meal with bread and cup designated to signify Jesus' body and blood. But we do the best we can recognizing that right now nothing is ideal. Ideally, we would all be together right now, not over Facebook Live, but we're doing the best we can. But the bread and cup remind us, and I think the reason Jesus gave this to us, it's A simple, tangible, doable, regular reminder that our whole new life as Christians is based on Jesus' body broken for us and Jesus' blood spilled for us. That's the basis by which proud, arrogant sinners like me and like you can be made right with God and become children of God. So we're not able to eat that bread together and drink that cup together over Facebook Live, but we can do the self-examination and we can invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and reveal to us any pride or arrogance we need to shed and repent of. So I want to encourage you to do that just throughout the day. Ask the Lord to show you and ask him to help you to pursue humility and teachability and correctability. But let me pray for us and then we'll conclude our time together. Father, thank you For Jesus, your only begotten Son, who makes a way for us all to become your sons. Thank you for him. Thank you that you discipline your children. Please root out in us any pride and arrogance of heart that would short-circuit your corrective discipline. Please make us soft-hearted and open and receptive to your instruction and your correction. 
I pray that each and every one of us would experience your fatherly loving correction this week and find ourselves freer from sin, find ourselves more on the right path, more uh, increasingly embodying the humility of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.